Absolutely. I think bang for your buck, quality versus price point, you cannot beat Sherry. I mean, all of our wines are, you know, rated 90 points or higher if, you know, you care about that sort of thing. I know a lot of consumers do, and it is a good benchmark, you know, for people who don't really know, you know, wine that well. Um, but just Sherry in general, bang for your buck, like you said, a lot of time and effort and care has gone into these products. And when you can buy, you know, a 95 point wine for 20 bucks. It's like, why wouldn't you? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, friends? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I am Chris Lebeau, and uh, today we kind of wade a little deeper into the waters. Uh, to me, you know, still uh, thinking about the average cocktail journey for most people uh, and spirits journey. It really begins to that point with spirits. We become very interested in things like a whiskey or a gin or a mezcal, etc., but I think after time, if you begin tiptoeing deeper into the waters, you encounter two other little categories. You encounter various liqueurs and also a variety of fortified and aromatized wines that are there. And to that end, uh, today we're going to talk about sherry. My, my guest is Stephen Dragoon. He is the national brand ambassador for Emilio Lustau. And uh, you can find them online at Bodegas Lustau, L-U-S-T-A-U. This will be in the show notes, uh, along with Stephen. Uh, his Instagram handle, uh, his name, Stephen, D-R-A-G-U-N. Uh, and uh, I wanted to have Stephen on because Sherry is something that I have brought up before on this show. And yet it is something that even though I've tried it, had it in cocktails, read a whole book on it, it, it is a category that I feel like for me still is one of the most cognitively like vexing right up there with, and really honestly exceeding probably even the agave category. There's a lot going on in agave, but the processes by which sherry can be brought to life, the fact that this category can all in one include what is the driest wines in the world, basically, as well as many of the sweetest wines in the world, this entirely broad category. And the fact that when you taste many of these things in I asked Stephen about some of his earliest memories in the category, that many of these wines are also very jarring because of the processes by which we encounter them. You know, I think about like coffee is a great example. The first time you taste coffee, you don't, many people don't go, oh, I love this. Sherry is another thing that's very much an acquired taste, yet it is extremely versatile in the cocktail world in terms of the flavors and characteristics it can bring to a drink. Sherry also is important for us to look at because mixologists really have helped bring it back. And yet, for most of us, it still has this thing of like, you know, I never watched the show Frasier, but I gather there they were all in their snooty academic world, kind of carrying on about it. Um, or it's something you remember like you know, your grandmother cooked with or like just was something that 
uh, elderly people in your life drank that you haven't really messed around with. And so this is something that um, a lot of bartenders are employing, and yet it is still this topic that for most of us is very out of reach. So I brought Stephen in, um, talk a little bit about his background of how he got there, uh, but to really help walk us through sherry as a category, how do we use it, uh, how do we think about cooking with it in great ways, and um, to really help hopefully give you a basic primer on this tool that a lot of people at the, at the cutting edge and even a lot of the normal edges now are using, how do you begin to employ this on your bar shelf at home? Uh, an additional reference, uh, uh, the uh, author uh, Talia Baiocchi has an entire book on Sherry. I will link out to that as well. But here you are, my episode and interview with Stephen Dragoon. Stephen, thanks so much for taking some time to chat today. I'm I'm excited about this one. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. It's uh, it's great to be here. Sherry is uh, is something that is, uh, you know, it's very popular, whether people listening or not know it, in cocktails these days. And yet for the lay person out there, it is still very much this oftentimes a more obscure thing. Is there a, a moment you remember tasting Sherry for the first time or the moment where you were like, God, I got to I got to dig into this. Where, where, where do you remember where you were and, and what was that like? I yeah, I do. So um like most people in the beverage world, I got into sherry via cocktails. As you mentioned, it's you know very popular as a cocktail ingredient for several reasons, which we can talk about later. But uh, I had used it before, but I remember in 2015 is when uh, you know I really started to get into it. I had used uh, like the Amontillado before. I had used the cream sherry, but. I mean, the first time I tried Fino, I remember it was like, wow, what is going on here? Um, I remember I didn't even know if I liked it initially because it was so jarring. You know, I, the flavors you come across in the biologically aged wines, you really don't encounter anywhere else. You know, extremely dry, essentially no sugar, you know, very, very salty and briny and bready, yeasty. And so I remember it, it took me a few times, you know, to taste, you know, tasting it to really understand and get into it. And I always like to equate it to like the first time you have a really smoky scotch, uh, like Laphroaig or Lagavulin. It's like, well, this is a whiskey, but man, it is just behaving so differently from the rest of the whiskey category. And I feel the same thing with, about sherry is, you know, especially the biologically aged wines. It is a fortified wine, but boy, it, it is acting, you know, radically different from most of the other fortified wines that are out there. So yeah, around 2015 is when I really started to become a sherry head. And then um, I would say maybe uh, four to six months later is, is when I started working for Gustau. So it's kind of funny how it all, it, it all came together for me in that regard. Wow, that is that is a pretty quick uh, turnaround. But I I remember and I when I'm sharing sherry with people for the first time, or you know, uh, it's one of their in, uh, in, maybe not the first time, but early on, I remember in her book, uh, and this is certainly a last name that always t uh, trips me up. But Talia uh, uh, Bioki, Bioki, yeah, yeah, Bi yeah, Biachi, Biachi, 
Anyways, uh, but I remember her saying very clearly in the book, you know, Sherry is not, uh, very rarely is love at first taste that we, we bump into it and we go, wow, this is, this is different. This is, um, and I do think about reminding people that a lot of times when you had coffee or a beer for the first time, you probably didn't like it, but, uh, but yeah, this is something that is certainly very, very strange on the palate when people bump into it. Yeah, absolutely. It is very much an acquired taste. But then there's also, you know, a, a common misconception, especially here in the States. Uh, everyone thinks sherry is like port, uh, which it can be. Um, there are sherries that, you know, are around the same sugar level, you know, have a very similar flavor profile. So it can be like port. But in actuality, 95% of sherry production are the drier wines, the, the ones that, you know, people don't come across. So, you know, the Fino Manzanilla, the Amontillado, the Palo Cortado, and, you know, the Oloroso. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we still have a long way to go as far as getting people to understand the category as a whole, because right now it's, it's still very much seen as an after-dinner drink, you know, a dessert uh, wine pour. So clearly doing this for Lustau, and I remember hearing you say in an interview, and I was I thought it was great that clearly you're representing the company, but really you are representing the category because Sherry just has so much PR to overcome. But uh, I remember also when I was digging into the book, this idea that Sherry is, you know, 3,000 years old, you know, it's been happening in this south southern corner of Spain for all this time. If we're starting at the beginning with someone to talk to them about Sherry as a category, Stephen, how do we begin to orient them as to what we're looking at? Because then obviously the nuance really begins to emerge from there. Right. So, I mean, the the, the definition of Sherry is it's a, a fortified wine from the southwest part of Spain. Uh, currently, as it stands, it has to be aged in the Sherry Triangle. And the Sherry Triangle is comprised of three towns, Jerez de la Frontera, which is the main town, uh, San Lucar de Barrameda, which is further west, uh, you know, close to uh, this river that separates Spain and Portugal, and then uh, El Puerto de Santa Maria, you know, further south, which is on the bay. And so, you know, these three towns are probably a 30-minute drive from one another, so it's a, you know, very small part of the world. Um, so yeah, it's a fortified wine uh, from the southwest part of Spain with various styles ranging from very dry to very sweet. So, you know, right off the bat, we, we essentially have nine different styles, uh, you know, Fino Manzanilla, which are essentially the same exact wine. The only difference is Fino is aged in Perez or El Puerto and Manzanilla is aged in San Lucar de Barrameda. That is the only difference and to the point where a lot of producers might even make all of the wine in Jerez and will ship it to the other two towns for aging. So that's the only difference between Fino and Manzanilla is just the town in where it's aged. Um, and those are what we call biologically aged wines and that they age under a layer of yeast their entire life. So we have those. Then we have the um, the oxidative, the dry oxidative wines, which are the Amontillado, the Palo Cortado, and the Oloroso. Um, the Amontillado and Palo Cortado, we uh, designate these as being dual aged in that 
They start off as a biologically aged wine, and then they transition into an oxidatively aged wine. So essentially, they start off as a pheno. In the case of the Los Arcos that you have, it spends uh, four years as a pheno. Um, we, the floor dies, and then it begins to oxidize and oxidizes for four additional years. So uh, you know, an average age of eight years with that Amontillado you have. Uh, and then you have the Oloroso, which uh, is 100% oxidative. It didn't see any time under the yeast. Uh, so it essentially just goes straight in the barrel and starts to oxidize for its entire life. And typically Olorosos are, you know, 12 plus years, typically a bit older than the rest of the, the dry wine. So those are all the dry categories. And then we have the sweet end where we have cream sherry. But within cream sherry, we have three different styles of cream sherry. We have a pale cream and a medium cream. These you don't really find that often in the, the market or in, out in the field. Uh, typically, when you do, it's at a very high-end uh, restaurant. And it you know, might be on their you know, dessert wine list or their aperitif list. Um, but typically, you don't see the pale or the medium cream that often. The rich cream um like the harvey's bristol cream which is like the foremost example and the one everyone knows um or for us the east india which is probably our most popular product those are what we call rich cream and and those are the ones that most people you know recognize out in the world and those are the ones that are like port in that you know they have the same you know sort of flavor profile they're around the same sugar content uh, so the cream sherries are, are what most people think of when you say sherry. So we have those three, and then we have the muscatel, which is the only sherry that utilizes the muscatel grape. Um, and it's around you know 200 grams of sugar per liter. The, the rich cream's around 120. And then finally, on the far end, we have the PX sherry, and that's at least 400 grams of sugar per liter. Um, and it uses the the Pedro Jimenez grape exclusively, and so you know these you know the very very you know sweet wine, very viscous, very raisiny, you know almost like raisin juice. Uh, so you know right there from off the bat, you know we have all of these different categories, and because we have these different categories and different styles, you have so much nuance into the production itself just to you know create these different products. So going back to the other end of the scale with the Fino and the Manzanilla, obviously, uh, this is like we talked about, has been working on for a long time. You know, I, I remember as I was reading this book, I was like, when I saw a reference to the Phoenicians, I was like, okay, we're, we, we are back here now. Why in the first place is yeast, this floor, this yeast layer, why is it introduced to the wine in the first place? Was it anything about preservation to keep it from going bad or what was the decision to actually do this in the first place well so it's important to note that even though we have three thousand years of history as far as sherry making is concerned or wine making from the region uh sherry as we understand it today really didn't start to get codified until the 19th century and then officially was codified in 1935 when the consejo regulador was founded they're the governing body that oversees all aspects of sherry production. Got it. Um, so 1935 onward is really our understanding of sherry. Um, but uh, a lot of the you know bodegas like Lustau and Gonzalez Baez and Valdespino, a lot of the bigger houses 
um, they were starting to, you know, be founded and, you know, the early to mid 1800s, Lustau was a bit later, 1896. So even though we have all this history, um, really pre 1800, Sherry was all over the place. I mean, uh, fortification really didn't start to happen until the Moors, you know, sacked this part of the world. And I believe it was 711 AD. They weren't big drinkers, but they brought the gift of distillation uh, to the area, you know, because they were using distillation for medicinal purposes, you know, like essential oils and, and things of that nature. So really from 1000 BC up until the, when the Moors, you know, conquered Spain, um, the wines were unfortified. Um, so for, and then from there on uh, fortification, there, there were times where they were, you know, very heavily fortified. There were times where they were very lightly fortified and everything in between. So it's just important to note that even though we have all this history, you know, our understanding of what Sherry is today is really only, you know, 150 years old-ish. But really what we're drinking today is less than 100 years old as far as, you know, rules and regulations being put into place. As for the floor that you're asking about, the floor is never something that was added it it was just a naturally occurring phenomenon the yeast it, you know it's all over the grapes it's in the wine uh you know we do add a little bit of yeast in the beginning but that's for fermentation that's a that's a completely separate you know issue the yeast that you know the floor that just is naturally occurring in the wine and the, the reason why it, it you know seals the wine shut it floats to the top is essentially it starts off in the wine the yeast is consuming everything it can, all the sugar, all the oxygen, all the glycerin, to the point where it is a living organism and needs more air. It has to float to the top of the wine to get more air to keep living. So when that happens, that's when this thin, you know, veil of floor, what we call, uh, seals the wine shut. And that's what protects it from oxygen for, you know, its entire life in the barrel. Um, so it was never something that was decided upon. It was just something that occurred that they noticed and they they kept doing it. Um, and with that, you know, being the only wine that is aged under a layer of yeast, you are getting those flavors that you don't really find anywhere else. Again, I mentioned earlier, very dry, less than one gram of sugar per liter. So essentially no sugar, uh, you know, very salty, briny, um, crisp uh, you know, sharp, pungent flavors. And that's really due to, you know, it's time under the yeast. And most biologically aged wines are in you know, around four, you know, four to eight years. Um, but most of them are, you know, closer to the four year mark. Yeah. So first, thank you for clarifying kind of the timeline. I appreciate that. So obviously, yes, uh, yeast plays a very key role in the fermentation process for anything as we kick it off. So is it really just Stephen then, uh, was it, did it become an elective decision that, um, to just leave the yeast in after, um, it was at, it, when a traditional winemaker would pull it out for the flavors that it was creating. I, so I guess that's more the decision, the question then as opposed to obviously an artificial addition is, was it decided to leave the yeast in longer because we liked the flavor that came off? Because like we've said, it's not always love at first taste. Right. 
Yeah, I think it was it was more of they realized that, oh, this is you know very unique. Uh, you know, it is a naturally occurring thing, you know, the yeast floating to the top. Um, and I think once they realize that, you know, they're creating a very, very special wine that, you, you know, you don't really find anywhere else. Uh, I think they just kept producing it. Um, and you're right. It's very jarring. It, it's, uh, you know, for most people that want to get into dry sherry, say they are, you know, Harvey's Bristol cream lovers or, you know, East India, you know, cream, you know, they're, they're wanting to expand their sherry, you know, palate. I usually start them off with the Amontillado because I feel it's the most approachable. You're encountering flavors that you might have come across before, like Madeira, uh, you know, Marsala. You're getting those oxidative notes. Uh, you can find those flavors elsewhere and, you know, they're nutty and, and round. Um, they're a bit more approachable versus the Dofino is just very, very unique to the sherry world itself. And even to the point where if you ask a master sommelier about sherry, they usually first thing that comes to their mind is Fino sherry because it acts so radically different. So I think it, it was really just that they, they kept producing it because they realized that they had something special on their hands. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So uh, kind of uh, walking people through, and we kind of touched a little bit, but so we have our Fino and our Manzanillas, which are really more di distinguished by geography more than anything. But, mm -hmm. you know, an Amontillado is something that then is uh, uh, kind of oxidatively aged. Do you mind going a little bit more into what that oxidative process looks like? And and what does that transition look like in terms of flavors from a Fino to an Amontillado or how, however you want to talk through that, please? Sure, of course. So with the dual aging, as I mentioned, we, we start off as a Fino. The Fino and the Manzanilla, these wines are very, very delicate. So um, we only um, fortify them slightly, up to 15% alcohol, in that the yeast, uh, the floor, uh, it won't survive above 16% alcohol. So we cannot fortify it any further. And so the way we make Amontillado is we have the Fino for four years. We fortify it a second time up to at least 8 or 17%. Um, this kills the floor, and then the wine starts to oxidize. And so with the oxidation, um, you're, you're getting, uh, you know, more alcohol concentration over time. You don't have that veil of yeast protecting the wine. So with that gone, you are now starting to lose uh, water due to evaporation, or the angel share is what they would call it in the whiskey world. Uh, so because you're losing water over time, the wine is concentrating. Obviously, you're, you're losing volume as well. And with that concentration, that's where the oxidation, you're really getting all those nutty flavors, those dark fruit flavors like plums and figs, uh, you know, almonds. That's really due to the oxidation. But the oxidation couldn't happen uh, unless we fortified it up to 17%. And so with the, the Los Arcos Amontillado, I believe it's, you know, we we kill the yeast, uh, you know, we fortify it up to 17%, but by the time it gets bottled, it's at 18% because, again, you're getting that concentration over time. Hmm. So if I was standing in, and for everybody out there, the, uh, the, the terminology is, uh, so bodega is the facility where uh, the wine is often aged, if I'm hopefully using mm -hmm. my 
Uh, so if I was staring at a barrel of Amontillado being oxidatively aged, is it going to visually look different than a Cabernet being aged in a barrel? Uh, is is there, in terms of what's allowing that oxidative process, you said part of it's the fortification are there other things being done to make sure that it's exposed to more air? Is that, is there I just, a new one? Well, I just think it's time, you know, okay. most table wines aren't going to sit in a barrel for, you know, eight years or, or longer. Got it. So I really think it's just the time in the barrel uh, okay. is what really is contributing to, you know, to the oxidation itself. Um, yeah. You know, most table wines, I, I, I don't know what the average age would be, but let's say it's, you know, maybe six months or maybe a year. Sure. It's going to oxidize a little bit, but not like eight, 12 years, you know, of sitting there. So, you know, the time is really the most important factor here. And the same thing goes for whiskey. You know, a lot of people try to, you know, cut corners and, you know, instead of aging it in a big barrel, they might age it in smaller barrels to get more of that woody characteristic, but it's still, they're not taking into account that air plays a huge role in whiskey production. And it's the same thing here in sherry, uh, even to the point that, you know, the sherry butts are, you know, much larger than a whiskey barrel, 600 liters. So about three times the size of a whiskey barrel. Um, we, we fill these barrels only up to 500 liters. So we have that extra headspace either for the growth of the floor or in the case of the oxidatively aged wines, that extra space for air to impact the wine. So it's really about, you know, time, you know, impacting the wine and creating those oxidative flavors. Hmm. Okay. Um, but as far as anything else goes, aside from the fortification, the wine production process is, you know, really similar. You pick the grapes, you turn it into must, you get the wine up to, you know, 12 to 14 degrees of alcohol. And then, you know, you might lightly age it. So everything there is exactly the same. It's really just the, the addition of, you know, the neutral brandy spirit to fortify the wine and then just time in the barrel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Thank you. Uh, so going back to Sherry's at times um, perception problem that we have with people where, you know, it's obviously the metaphor i'm sure you're sick of at this point like oh like isn't that the thing you cook with or the thing that some snooty academic drinks like if i am opening if i'm in a the grocery store uh in like the cooking aisle and i see a bottle of sherry there versus whatever the best analogy would be in lustal's portfolio i'm sure the quality is very different but what's the difference between what people think of in terms of a cooking sherry versus uh, a sherry that they would buy from Lustau. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just that is quality. And, you know, when you say cooking sherry, the first thing that comes to mind is is like Taylor's from California. And they have a whole range of Taylor's port, Taylor's sherry. Um, and I think the only way they get away with that is because their company is so old, you know, they were kind of grandfathered in. But technically, if you see Taylor's sherry on the shelf, Legally, it's not sherry because it has to be made in, you know, it's it's very much like champagne. It has to come from this particular region. Uh, so a lot of the times when you see sherry in the grocery store, a lot of the times legally it might not be considered sherry. 
um, especially the Taylors, which I think is the one that most people would use as far as cooking wines go. Um, but as far as flavor goes, it's really just about quality. Um, and, and that's really the only difference. Sherry is great to cook with. Um, a, you know, we have so many styles to play with. So we have a sherry for every, you know, kind of food you could ever want. Um, we're encountering flavors you, you don't come across. So that really, you know, lends to creating a more complex and interesting dish. Uh, like one of my favorite pairings is a macchiato sherry and mushrooms, home run. Um, you know, that umami character, you know, with the, you know, oxidative notes, it, it's, a, it's a perfect pairing. Um, so I think sherry is great for cooking just because they're, you know, depending on which style you're working with, you, you have so many avenues to be creative. And it's the same thing in the cocktail world as well. So many different flavors, so many different styles. You know, you could put a sherry into any, you know, sort of classic cocktail build and it will work depending on what you're, you know, going for. In the cocktail world, and I, I do want to talk about food pairings, but since we're here, uh... Are there any, Stephen, you know, and I know that obviously it is, you know, cocktails have really kind of helped give Sherry in part this new home that it's enjoying right now, which is so cool to see. But are there any general pairing rules? So, okay, uh, you know, I've got Gustavo's Manzanilla right here. I've got the Amontillado like we talked about. You know, if I'm starting, is it uh, anything to do with type of spirit, aging, unaging? It, does it really just go everywhere? I guess, are there any rules of thumb you might give people if they wanted to start experimenting at all? Sure. With food pairings, um, there's an old saying, and I always kind of screw it up, but it, it, it helps you decide what meats to pair with the different styles of uh, the dry sherry. So, if it swims away from you, it fino manzanilla. So it's great for you know anything seafood. I would also say chicken. You know any sort of white meat. Um, if it runs away from you, amontillado palo cortado. So now we're thinking more like duck and you know rabbit, gamier meats. Uh, you know m m pork is another great one. And then if it runs towards you. Oloroso, so bison, you know, uh, you know, bigger red meats, bolder flavors, great with like Korean barbecue. Um, so as far as meats go, that's how you you can remember which dry sherry to pair with the different meats. Um, an easy, you know, um, fail-proof pairing is cheeses and nuts. They can go with any of them, even the sweet sherries. You know, if you want to, you know, just you know, play it safe. Sherry with nuts and cheeses, you can't go wrong. Um, so that, that's an easy, you know, default to go to. And then for the sweeter sherries, um, of course, any sort of dessert. Uh, one of my favorite pairings is PX and blue cheese. Um, you know, very, very sweet wine with very funky, sharp, pungent, uh, you know, cheese. You know, the marriage of the two is, is really nice together. Um, and then, of course, for the muscatel and, and the cream, you know, any sort of chocolates, uh, you know, you, cream sherry and coffee is really good. Uh, any sort of baked ingredients, uh, you know, the the cream and the sweeter sherries, you know, really stand out nicely. Runs away versus runs towards. That's 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 <laughs> yeah. that, that, yeah, no, that, that, that one is perfect. Yeah. 
that belongs on a billboard somewhere. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, no, thank you for that. That's that's very very helpful. Um, yeah, because I mean, cer- certainly something we see in the cocktail sphere, which is so heartening, is you know you like oh uh, tequila may be best with you know uh, a manzanilla or, or you know or something like this. But then you of course see people find ways to work it in because they're using really creative builds that'll enable it to play a different starring role. Um, and, and obviously there are sherry based cocktails, you know, I feel like a no brainer blow people's minds every day of the week, handing somebody a well-made sherry cobbler, you know, it's just like, it will, it will stop anybody in their tracks. Um, yeah, it's, you know, one of our best drinks hands down um it's one that's approachable it's one that you know you can make seasonally depending on the sherry and the fruit you want to use um it's great for accounts because it's cheap to make so the return is you know really good for bars and restaurants yeah the sherry cobbler is a home run it's the drink i pitch the most to accounts or markets that you know maybe aren't as cocktail forward as say chicago or new york um, but yeah, the, the cobbler is a home run. And then within that, you have a couple other classic cocktails, the Adonis and the bamboo, which essentially are just sherry based uh, Manhattans and martinis. But then from there, uh, sherry really shines as a plug and play uh, product in that take any classic cocktail and you could plug and play sherry into it. My favorite one to show people is let's do a Fino daiquiri. Get rid of the white rum or maybe do a split base if you still want to have the rum, uh, you know, ounce of rum, ounce of fino, and then, you know, of course, lime juice and sugar. Um, But that one, if you're using just sherry, that's the one that blows people away because the the sharp acidity and the the salinity paired with the lime juice is a home run. It's it's a dangerous drink because it's so enjoyable and refreshing. Um, and then also, you know, it's a great tool to lower, you know, the ABV in a lot of the classic cocktails. So, you know, let's say we, we do want a Manhattan, um, but, you know, maybe we don't want two ounces of whiskey. Do an ounce of whiskey, ounce of sherry, and an ounce of sweet vermouth. You have now lowered your cost. You've lowered the ABV. So now people might order two instead of one. And you're also adding a little complexity. So now you're adding some nuttiness and some, you know, dark fruit notes to the Manhattan. Uh, It's really a great way across the board to create a a much more interesting drink. And so I think that's how you're you're seeing sherry being utilized most is you're seeing these classic cocktail builds uh, and they're just plugging and playing, you know, sherry, you know, either as a base ingredient or a split base between you know, uh, you know, sherry and the base spirit. And then they're adding some sort of, you know, elegant or creative liqueur or homemade syrup. But really, you know, with cocktails go, I kind of look at it like math equations. It's like you have this basic equation. And from here, it's like, well, uh, you know, a gimlet and a daiquiri are, you know, pretty much the same thing. It's just one's gin, one's rum. And it's so you, you take this, these few equations and, you know, plug and play these different products and it, it allows you to you know create some really interesting uh cocktails at the end mm. yeah and here's to the low proof cocktail for keeping us all out a little longer right uh, right so- exactly i feel like we've been t- uh, i've been talking about low abv for well i've been with lustau seven years now 
Um, I feel like only within the last year or two uh, are we really starting to see that on a consumer end. Uh, you know, people are buying more spritzes. Uh, I think COVID really helped that as well. You know, people migrating to White Claws and, and you know, canned cocktails. But there, there truly is an interest now in, you know, lower ABV drinks. And so it's, it's a great time to be in the sherry world and, and the fortified wine world for that matter. Uh, because there is an interest in, you know, drinking less alcohol, not getting blasted at lunch, you know, you know, like back in the 50s, a two martini lunch. Well, it's like, well, when the martini is six ounces of liquor and you have two of them, yeah, you're going to be plastered. So it's a nice time that we're living in that, you know, we are, you know, drinking more mindfully. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, One quick thing before I forget, and, you know, obviously it could be a little bit of experimentation, but if you were doing your lower proof Manhattan, would you be doing like in Oloroso, kind of on that those deeper oxidative notes potentially, or where would you be leaning for your sherry ad right there? I would say it would depend on the whiskey, but yeah, Amontillado, Palo Cortado, or Oloroso, and from there it would really just depend on you know are we using rye, are we using bourbon, you know which bourbon are we using? So you know I, I would most likely experiment with all three and see which one worked best, um, but I would really try to tailor it towards the whiskey and also the sweet vermouth as well. You know, that makes a, a huge difference in, you know, any cocktail is using, uh, you know, a nice quality vermouth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, but it, as far as, you know, plugging and playing sherry into cocktails, I mean, obviously, Fino Manzanilla, any sort of vodka drink, gin drink, or white rum drink, it, it'll work well. For Montiato, Palo Cortado, Oloroso, and, you know, darker spirits, you know, dark rum, whiskeys, you know, um, scotches, um, and then even, you know, getting into the liqueurs, like Fino would be great with like a chartreuse, uh, you know, any sort of herbal liqueur, aquavit. Um, So, you know, just from right there, you know, identifying, you know, which sherries would be, you know, good in conjunction with, you know, the you know, standard based spirits from there, you can really start to, you know, be uh, creative and, you know, experiments just by, you know, kind of narrowing down, you know, which lane should these sherries stand. And that being said, you know, because we have so many talented people behind the bar these days, I have seen a gin martini with Amontillado in it, and it works well, it tastes great. Um, so it, it's not like these are set in stone rules, but these are just more like guidelines. Typically, these are how these are used in cocktails. Yeah. And I think just for the curious person at home, it's this idea of of where at least can I start? Because, you know, as opposed to where obviously are bartenders and mixologists pushing the field, which is always just really, really cool in that regard. Right. So, yeah. I, I think the best place to start is, you know, Pick your favorite classic cocktail. And if it's whiskey based, you know, then do whiskey and an oxidative wine. If it's, you know, gin based, then yeah, do a Fino Manzanilla and just see how you can incorporate sherry into these classic drinks, because it really is the easiest way to add sherry to your repertoire. Got it. Got it. Something I heard you make mention of before, but not go into detail on. I don't know if there's anything worth expounding on here. You've certainly talked about um, talking about the importance of the uh, Jerez lifestyle, you know, and so I don't know if that threads into Sherry, but for people that, 
you know, hey, everybody's talks about being restless from a travel standpoint right now. Pitch, uh, pitch them on heading to the triangle. W- what are they going to encounter there? Uh, and what should they do if they are there? Right. I mean, it's a very special part of the world. It blew me away. I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, the first time I went uh, to Jerez, you know, we flew into Madrid, which Madrid's a you know beautiful city. It, it's, it has a vibe that, you know, I feel like you could transplant Madrid into any of the European you know countries and it, it would you know feel at home. I feel like Barcelona is different, like that is inherently unique to Spain. And I always like to say it's like the San Francisco in Europe, as far as, you know, it's on the bay, the weather, the, the, the feel. But when you go further south down to Jerez and Sevilla, completely different lifestyle, much more lax, laid back. Um, Sevilla is arguably the most beautiful place I've ever been to. I mean, the, the city is just gorgeous and it's just outside the triangle, maybe 20 or 30 minutes via train. Uh, so it's easily accept, uh, accessible. Um, but yeah, the, the lifestyle in the Sherry realm is much more laid back. Uh, you know, the architecture is really interesting because you've had all of these different, you know, people occupying this territory you see roman architecture you see moorish architecture you, you know you see some influence from the brits when you know they sacked uh cadiz in the 1600s so you're seeing all these different influences impacting this part of the world that you just don't really get in the rest of the of spain you know the rest of spain is very spanish but once you get down there it really is this melting pot of culture so for me, I think that's one of the most interesting things is it it definitely stands out from the rest of the country as far as just the architecture and the feel and the way of life. Um, I don't want to say it's behind the time, but I, I remember walking ar- around Jerez for the first time and it's like, God, I feel like I'm trapped in like 1985 or something. It's just as far as the feel and, and uh, you know, the vibe of the place. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's very special. Uh, it's definitely worth visiting. Uh, if anything, Sevilla, you know, is right there. It's definitely worth checking out. Um, but then also, you know, um, if you're thinking about going to this, you know, part of the world, uh, I would really recommend going in the springtime. They have an event called La Feria, and I still have not been. I'm, I'm hoping I will go this coming spring for the first time. Uh, but it's essentially Spain's Mardi Gras. And it, it happens in the south, you know, the southwest Andalusia with Sevilla being the main town. But it's really just a big party for, you know, an entire week. Uh, you know, lots of sherry is consumed. They have a drink called the Rebojito, which is essentially sherry and, and Sprite, like some sort of lemon lime soda. That's kind of like the official uh, La Feria drink because it's, you know, refreshing and you, you know, you can drink it all day long because it's low ABV. Um, but yeah, the, the the feeling down in Jerez is definitely much different than the other parts of Spain that I've been to. When uh, obviously we've talked about, uh, I mentioned, and because I've heard you say, "Hey, it's, you know, we're representing the category of sherry," but uh, whether it's uh, bottles people can find in their store beyond Lustau, or if they were there, are there a couple of uh, sherry houses in particular that you, you know, they're all wonderful, let's say, but are there a couple places in particular that are really, that are really special in your mind? 
Yeah, um, and, and I do feel like of the bigger bodegas, like we'll say the top five, each one really does have something great to offer. I think Lustau stands out in the fact that we're one of the few houses with a complete lineup, and the lineup is solid across the board. We're the only house that makes a biologically aged wine aged in the three different towns. So that's something that, you know, helps us stand out from the pack as well. That being said, I mean, it, I would really have to go category by category, but my favorite Manzanilla, you know, Barbadillo makes a fantastic Manzanilla. I mean, that's, for me, that's what they do well. The Soliar uh, is, is a fantastic uh, biologically aged wine. And I, I had the privilege of drinking that straight out of the barrel. Um, so that that's one house I really adore. El Maestro Sierra is a, another one. Um, very, very small house, very rustic, uh, you know, random, you know, sized barrels scattered throughout. They, they, I remember they had this one huge barrel that you could literally walk in. It was, you know, so big, um, but very old school. I think they were even still using egg whites to, you know, you know, help filter out some of the wine using, you know, older techniques. So that's one bodega that I really enjoyed. Um, of course, Valdespino and Gonzalez Baez have products that I, I think are great. Um, Valdespino, I remember I tried an 80-year-old Muscatel from Valdespino probably in like 2018 for Sherry Fest back in New York, and it blew me away. It was so good. Um, but then there are, no, there are other bodegas that you don't see in the States, um, you know, that are really only uh, available in Spain, um, like uh, Urium was one I hadn't heard of before, and we went to their bodega, and man, their Palo Cortado really blew me away. Um, I really liked all the wines that they were making, but they just aren't available in the States. So, they, you know, I would say any of the larger bodega houses, you know, you're going to find a, a really good quality wine. I just feel like different houses specialize in, you know, different styles, whereas Lustau is really trying to make more of a codified front. Like we want all of the wines to be, you know, superlative. It might not be your favorite Oloroso or your favorite Palo Cortado, but you can't say that it's not really good and, and high quality. And I think that's why we become sort of the default cocktail sherries because sure, maybe Fino Harana might not be your first choice for, you know, Fino by the glass, but it works great in a cocktail. It's, you know, it's solid, it's reliable, it stands out in the drink itself. So I think that's what really makes Lustau stand out from a lot of the other houses is we do have a really solid, complete lineup. I will say, uh, uh, Stephen has offered me nothing in return for this, but uh, the number of uh, bartenders I know who talk about Lustau first when it comes to their cocktails is it's it's definitely by far the top top mention. So, um, and and something that's also important to say too regarding Lustau and just many of these products, especially when you're getting out of stuff that hasn't been aged for forever or is exceptionally rare. You know, uh, I can buy a bottle of Amontillado here in the market for 20 bucks, you know, and that, you know, doing the math people in terms of that's an eight, eight years of aging, you're paying for 20 bucks for, uh, while something that may be unique, if you've not tried it before, it's an exceptional price for great quality wine for sure. Absolutely. I think bang for your buck 
quality versus price point, you cannot beat Sherry. I mean, all of our wines are, you know, rated 90 points or higher. If, you know, you care about that sort of thing. I know a lot of consumers do, and it is a good benchmark, you know, for people who don't really know, you know, wine that well. Um, but just Sherry in general, bang for your buck. Like you said, a lot of time and effort and care has gone into these products. And when you can buy, you know, a 95 point wine for 20 bucks, it's like, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Steven, you know, part of um, people understanding the category is like, oh, like wh- what is a dry v- wine versus what is a sweet wine and whatnot. But, you know, and we we mentioned, you know, Taylor's from California, not technically Sherry. Are there, you know, and I don't know if there would be any, but if if someone's at the store, one, this is my plug, Lustal is a great place to start, but are there any general watch outs you would have? Hey, you're at, you're looking at Sherry as a category, anything you'd consider avoiding or just not starting with to make sure that people don't end up with, with garbage or something, you know, so we probably not a Fino or Manzanilla if it's your first buy, right. but any watch outs in terms of quality at all, anything they might be able to pick up on? Not really. If it, okay. if it is a certified Sherry from Spain, if it has the DO symbol on the bottle, which they all should, I, I would say you're, you're good to go. I mean, okay. they're all putting out really high quality wines. Um, it's just the ones that legally shouldn't be considered Sherry. Those are the ones I'd steer clear from. So, you know, like the, if you see a big jug, you know, 1.5 liter jug of Sherry, don't buy it. That's no one in Jerez is, pouring sherry or bottling sherry in 1.5 liter, you know, uh, jugs, unless it's, you know, for a novelty. I think we have a few East India bottles that are like the, you know, five feet tall, you know, something like that, just for novelty sake. But as far as stuff you find on the shelf on a regular basis, if it's not, uh, if it's more than a 750 ml, I would say don't buy it. Good. Yep. And I think, since it's still even a, a thing at moments, uh, you know, the, the the mover and shaker people have their, uh, you know, magnet that I've got on my fridge that says, hey, like if you're reading this, put the vermouth in the fridge, you know, your sherry like wine needs to be, uh, you know what, talk to us a minute about shelf life of product too, please. Of course. Well, sure. So the great thing is they are fortified, so they will last longer. The ones you really only need to really worry about are the Fino and the Manzanilla. Uh, you got about a week, maybe 10 days if you're using it in cocktails, uh, maybe a bit longer if you're batching it with a high proof spirit. Uh, and that will, you know, of course, up the shelf life. But because the Fino and Manzanilla have been protected by oxygen their whole life, once you crack open that bottle, I mean, oxygen is going to just start trying to make up for lost time. And so they really will turn at a week. Um, so those are the ones you only need to worry about. And then like the Amontillado onward. Montiato, Palo Cortado, Oloroso, I would say a month to two months, depending on the ABV. And then the cream sherry, maybe six months. Uh, and then the Muscatel and the PX, you know, six months to a year. To be honest, I've had a bottle of PX in my fridge for years. I, it's not like it goes bad. It might not taste as fresh, but it's, it is fortified and there's 400 grams of sugar in it. Uh, it's very well preserved. So it's not like the Fino where you taste it and you, you realize, oh, it's turning. It doesn't really turn. It just doesn't really taste quite as vibrant as it did a year or two ago. Uh, but yeah, the, the main rule of thumb is just keep them on either on ice if, if you're at a bar or in the fridge. 
um, uh, you know, so they should live there. And then the Fino Manzanilla, you got about a week if you're going to be serving it by the glass. Got it. Thank you. Uh, something I'm curious about from my own perspective, um, you know, I'm not probably looking to become, uh, uh, you know, get into the sherry biz anytime soon. But when I've heard you speak before, you also talked about some of Lustau and I noticed some other uh, houses have it, some uh, very varieties of online education for sherry, like various certifications and whatnot. Are any of those good for the enthusiast, but not someone who's looking to be, who is a SOM that's looking for an add-on? Right. So, I mean, there really are only two courses available. The, you know, certified sherry wine, uh, you know, master of sherry certification that you get from the DO in Jerez. And I did that in 2016. And then there's the course that Lou Stow started, you know, probably five years ago, the CSWS, the Certified Sherry Wine Specialist course. Um, this is where I would start. It's it's online. I there's two of us offer the course, Lucas, who is our brand educator. That's essentially all he focuses on are the online courses because we we took it online. It's really exploded to the point where, you know, he really just needs to focus on that. I teach the same course, but geared more towards trade. So, you know, distributors or, you know, special industry events. Um, but I usually offer the course, you know, to the trade in person. Um, so I would say the CSWS is a great place to start for people. Uh, who are interested in learning more about Sherry. It's a great course. It's very thorough. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, if the Master Sherry course is here, you know, the CSWS isn't, you know, far behind. It, it's, you know, it's a solid intermediate course with a lot of content. The manual is 100 pages, so we do cover a lot of ground and you do need to study, but that's where I would start. And, you know, if you take the course and pass it, you will really have a great understanding of, you know, not only the region, you know, why it's important, you know, uh, you know, even talking about the different winds that impact the sherry region and how that, you know, is ideal for fuller growth and, and you know, things of that nature. Uh, if you take the CSWS course, you will really leave with a solid understanding of what sherry is, the region itself, and, and why it's unique and special. I will say as a follow-up to that, uh, this this guy right here, the Manzanilla, I remember when I read that read the description, and what does it say here on the back? It says something about, yeah, hint of sea breeze. And I swear, people, and maybe it's just Stephen and his power of suggestion, but uh, I remember drinking this and being like, God damn, this, this smells like the ocean. Like it was like wild. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, and I think there might be a small hint of truth to this. Um but not really. And then uh, people think the saltiness comes because these wines are aged close to the ocean. And although maybe there might be a hint of truth to that, if you think about like things in a freezer and like, you know, how some like if it's been in there long enough, one item might pick up flavors from the other item that it's in there. So I think there might be a hint of truth to that because the floor is is situated close to the ocean that maybe some of the salt uh, is getting deposited into the floor, but really in actuality, that saltiness and brininess is really just coming from the yeast impacting the wine. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's really more about the floor versus the ocean itself is impacting the wine. But I think there might be a very small hint of truth to that, that I, I would be interested to see, you know, if you were to try to make the same wine 
Um, well, and I, I, even Jerez is a good example. For me, I always tend to drink either Manzanilla from San Lucar or Afino from El Puerto. Because it's closer to the ocean, these wines are typically a bit more funkier, have a bit more character from, you know, Jerez is further inland, farther removed from the water. So I don't want to say they're not as good, but I, I would say they're more one note, uh, whereas I, I feel there's more nuance and complexity from uh, San Lucar and El Puerto. And part of that is due to the water in that, you know, because they're close to the water, their temperatures don't fluctuate quite as much during the year, whereas in Jerez, it gets much hotter, um, you know, and much more, it's much more arid. So uh, it's a little less ideal for the floor growth. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, you, you can find some great complexity from the wines from San Lucar and, and El Puerto. So I have two other little things I want to cover before we uh, wrap up. And if there's anything we haven't covered, you want to talk about. That's great. Um, so one, while we'll already have passed, in, uh, we're right in the middle of International Sherry Week right now. What uh, And you mentioned before we started recording that there's some interesting activations happening right now. What What's happening in the world of sherry right now on a more contemporary basis? What 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 might people find if they were out right now? Yeah, so it's it's really a, a you know concerted effort from all the bodegas, really just trying to raise awareness about sherry. And so this could be you know a pairing dinner, it could be a, a you know a happy hour feature with you know sherry cocktails. I'm actually doing one here on Friday at Haleo, you know Jose Andres's uh, spot. And we're going to feature um, a sherry paired with a, a dish. We're going to feature a, a cocktail. And then we're going to feature sherry, you know, pours by the glass. Um, so things of this nature, just little, you know, pop-ups here and there, just really trying to, you know, showcase sherry to your everyday consumer. Um, yeah, typically happy hours, pairing dinners. Um, we just did a Sherry Cobbler cocktail competition in D.C. to kick off Sherry Week, and, and my coworker Mario flew in from Spain for that. Um, but yeah, so things of this nature, you, you know, you'll just you'll be seeing more Sherry cocktails being featured throughout this week is probably the thing you'll see the most. And then from there, you know, more elevated places, Spanish, you know, restaurants, they might do, you know, some sort of sherry pairing dinner where a different sherry is paired with five to you know, seven courses or more, depending on, you know, where you're going. Mm. Very good. Uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed more recently, at least in my market, and maybe it's 18 months ago, but uh, I did see uh, Lustau, at least to me, is now uh, or has been for a while, but it's in the vermouth game now. And yes. So tell us a little bit about that, you know, vermouth very quickly for anybody else not caught up. Uh, so vermouth is also another fortified wine out there. Um, and typically, you know, primary flavored with wormwood being its bittering agent. But uh, tell us a little bit about Lustal's product and why did you guys decide to get into this game or have you been doing it for a long time? So it is relatively new to the U.S. market. The the Rojo, the Red Vermouth, has been around the longest. I think we launched that in the States 2016? 2016 is when the Red launched. And then maybe a year or two later, the Blanco launched. And then the new Rosé, the Rosado, uh, we launched that in the middle of COVID. So that one is still being discovered by a lot of people. Um, 
But we launched them in the States because A, you know, low ABV and fortified wines are, you know, really picking up and there's a strong interest in it. But B, and more importantly, vermouth is a huge part of Spanish drinking culture. I would say more so than sherry, to be honest with you, to the point where if you go, you know, walking around bar hopping in Madrid, you will definitely come across a bar with a vermouth machine, like a Jägermeister machine, you know, and just hit the button and it, you know, cold vermouth comes out from the tap. So, you know, vermouth and soda, vermouth on the rocks, uh, you know, these things are consumed, you know, very much in, in Spain, whereas sherry I definitely would say more is more towards, you know, the sherry part of, of Spain, the Jerez region. Um, outside of the region, you don't see, you know, sherry being consumed as much, but vermouth is huge across the entire country of Spain. So that's really um, you know, what it boils down to, it's a part of, you know, their culture. And we wanted to, you know, showcase that. And then, of course, with Lustau, which makes ours stand out from some of the other Spanish vermouths, uh, they are sherry based. So, you know, you're getting really high quality wine that's being used. We're using the same Fino or Amontillado that we use, you know, to bottle the, you know, the Los Arcos and the, the Papi Russo. Um, and, you know, with that, because we're using sherries, there's no added sugar, you know, a lot of vermouth, they, they take essentially like, okay, we have a batch of red wine. It's not good enough to be bottled and served as a table wine, but we don't want to throw it away. But what do we do? We aromatize the wine and we add sugar to it. And now we have a vermouth. Um, so with that, we're not really trying to you know be sustainable in that way like we're just intentionally trying to make a good wine so we're using high quality wines as a base because we're using sherry we're using sweeter sherries to sweeten the wine so we're you know using px or an unaged muscatel to sweeten the wines versus adding sugar to it so it is all natural residual sugar and yeah because they're sherry based you are getting those sherries flavors I know that accompany, you know, the standard vermouth profiles that you find out there. Yeah, I've uh I've had the the rosado and the the rojo, but I've not had the blanco yet. The blanco I I, I momentarily saw and then it was gone and isn't that the story of everything right now. So <laughs> <That's> uh... Right. <laughs> I I I mean I like all three, um but I think for me I prefer the blanco the most just because it's the most unique. I think if you were to, you know, put it side by side with like a Carpano Bianco, uh, you know, some of the other notable Bianco vermouths, the flavor profile of Lustau's Bianco vermouth is really radically different in a great way for me. It's very rosemary, you know, gentian forward, very herbaceous. And so I, I think it's a really outstanding, unique uh, style of Bianco vermouth. The red is fantastic. Um, I, I could drink it all day long. I, I love it to death, but it's very what you would expect from a, a sweet red as far as flavor profile goes. And then the rosado is, I, I like to tell people like that's kind of our entry level vermouth. You're wanting to get into vermouth. It's not quite as bitter. It's a bit more rounded out, you know, notes of vanilla and nutmeg. Um, you know, it's a bit more approachable. So I think that's a great option for people who are, you know, trying to get into vermouth. Maybe start here. It's not quite as bitter and, you know, it's a bit more approachable flavor profile wise. Got it. Terrific. Uh is there anything, Stephen, we haven't covered that you wanted to get into at all today? Um, 
I don't think so. I think we've really covered everything um, without going too deep into the production aspect of it. Um, one thing uh, that should be mentioned uh, that you know most people either overlook or, or don't know, I think it's important to talk about standard pour for sherry is three ounces. I, you know, I see this happen a lot. A lot of bars will give you a two ounce pour, so, you know, technically, and this is coming not from new style, but this is, you know, from the Consejo itself, you know, sherry should be, you know, a three ounce pour. And I would say even go a step further, if you're pouring Fina or Manzanilla, it is only 15% alcohol. You could pour them a five ounce pour and it's still the same ABV level as some table wines. Um, so I like to, you know, give a generous pour with the Fino and Manzanilla, A, because they're not going to get tanked. Like if you were to pour five ounces of Oloroso, you're definitely going to feel it. It's 20% alcohol. Um, but with the Fino Manzanilla, it's good because, you know, it's in keeping with what's happening with the rest of the wine world. But also it, it ensures you that you're not letting it go to waste, you know, by it sitting in the fridge for more than a week. And now, well, I have this Fino I can't use. I got to get rid of it somehow. I might cook with it or just toss it out. So by pouring five ounces by the glass, you're ensuring that, you know, you're getting rid of the wine before it turns. So that's one thing that I think at least three ounces for everything. And then the other thing, um, you know, most people think that it needs to be in the small little Copita glasses. The uh, Conseo Regulador is really, you know, trying to get people to just move to white wine glasses. There's so much that's going on as far as aroma goes with sherry that, you know, the smaller Copitas just really don't capture it as well. So, you know, a white wine glass is the standard glass that the Consejo Regulador does want people to use. So don't feel like if you're at home, you need to go out and buy, you know, fancy sherry glasses. If you're becoming an enthusiast, actually, we just want you to use a white wine glass. So those are two things that I, I think most people either don't know about or, or overlook or, you know, it's a three ounce pour and just use a white wine glass. You, you don't need to use something too fancy. Um Aside from that, we talked about shelf life. Um, oh, we, we didn't talk about the grapes. Uh, just quick notes. Yeah. Uh, even though you have so many different colors going on with the sherries, they are all white grapes. You know, you have the, the Palomino Fino, which that's used exclusively for all the dry sherries. You have the Muscatel, which is used exclusively just for the Muscatel sherry. And then you have the Pedro Jimenez grape, the PX, that's used for both PX sherry, and it's blended in with the cream. I failed to mention earlier, cream sherry is typically a blend of Oloroso sweetened with PX. Um, so yeah, three white grapes, and all the color is really coming from the barrel and oxidation. So mm. it's not like we're using red grapes. Now, I will say that, and this might change, actually, because... I think sometime this year, the new laws will be put into place. The first time since 1935, the Consejo Regulador has made changes to sherry production as far as requirements go. So I know that one for sure is they're going to do away with the sherry triangle. No longer do you have to age the wine in one of the three towns, but now you can age it in any of the nine municipalities that make up the sherry region. So Say you have a, a winery in, you know, La Brija, which is, you know, a little bit further removed from Jerez. You currently, as it stands, you can make the wine there. But if you want it to be considered sherry, you would have to ship the wine into one of the three towns to be aged. 
they're going to do away with that. As long as it's, you know, made and aged in any of the nine municipalities, it will be considered sherry. So it's a very exciting time because that means it's going to open up the door for these smaller producers to come to market because they don't have to worry about the additional cost to ship it into one of the towns and age it there. Um, you're going to start seeing some, you know, smaller boutique sherries come to the market. And then also, and I don't know uh, which grapes uh, are going to be authorized, but I know they're going to open up the door for some other indigenous grapes to the region to be mm. used for sherry production. Like I know pre-Consejo Regulador, they were using both Palomino Fino, which they're using now, but also Palomino Negro. So they were using a, a different style of Palomino. Um, you know, a, a, a red skin grape. So we might, you know, see some red grapes, you know, being used in sherry production. I just don't know if that's actually going to be the case until the laws are signed. So it's it's a very fun time to be in the sherry world because these changes are going to, you know, be put in place soon. And it's really going to open up the door for some, you know, smaller, interesting wineries to come uh, to the market. So it's, it's a fun time to be in the sherry world. Got it. And see, I would imagine that uh, at that point in time, if uh, I, I suppose people could be already aging Palomino Negro just for fun, but otherwise uh, they could sign it, but we'll also be waiting a handful of years between all the aging and whatnot and actually right. to get to the market. So Right, exactly. So yeah, say they put the law in place today. Well, we're probably not going to see that wine in the market for four or five years just because <laughs> that's typically how long it takes to make a Fino or Manza Manzanilla or you know even longer if you're going to be doing an oxidative wine. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, the changes will happen soon, but we won't see the results of the changes for probably about five more years. Hmm. Unless some small bodega out there was very intuitive and they already have some made just waiting for the laws to change. But I think that will be probably very slim to none chance that that, that has happened. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Stephen, this has been great. In terms of people uh, keeping up with Ustau or anything you're doing, are there places they should be looking you guys up on the old internet at all? Yeah, of course, our social media handles, you know, at Bodegas Lustau, um, you know, for all the, you know, different platforms of social media. Um, of course, our website, lustau.es, but another one, Sherry Journey, um, you know, lots of articles on Sherry. I usually do a monthly uh, cocktail article, you know, talking about some sort of famous, you know, notable cocktail and then make a Sherry based version of it. Um, but also articles. Lucas writes a lot of articles on, you know, all sorts of different aspects of Sherry and the history of Sherry and Jerez Brandy. Um, so I would say Sherry Journey outside of, you know, the standard Lustau uh, plugs. Sherry Journey is a great uh, resource for you as far as, you know, learning more about the category itself. Got it. Terrific. Well, uh, Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank, again, thank you for having me. It's always fun talking about sharing. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or 
give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.